0: AAA A is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count.
1: pushkin hey last archive listeners this is jill lapore we're hard at work on season three and can't wait to share it with you it's all about reason about finding our way towards hope and common knowledge and out of the epistemological pickle we explored in seasons one and two But making a new season takes time, so meanwhile, I want to introduce you to a new limited-run series that I'm doing called The Last Archivist. Over the years, I've met hundreds and hundreds of archivists, collectors, curators, librarians, keepers of history, people with trinkets and facts and ideas that I want to add to our collection of the known things. In this series, you'll hear from a few of them about their work, like how to set up a library in a prison what four decades' worth of eyeglasses can tell us about the history of a person, and why a trash collector in Pittsburgh is a kind of archivist, too. It's going to be fun. This series is just for Pushkin Plus subscribers, but we're dropping the first episode for you here in the feed. If you want to hear the rest, subscribe at the Last Archive show page in Apple Podcasts, or go to Pushkin.fm/plus. And thanks for listening. Welcome to The Last Archivist, the show where I talk to archivists about the collections and records they keep and why. In this episode, I talked to Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's the author of three books, including Felon, a collection of poems about the effects of incarceration. He's also an actor, a lawyer, and a teacher, and the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. We talked about Freedom Reads, an organization Betts started to bring literature to jails and prisons across the country. Betts was incarcerated as a teenager and given a nine-year sentence. While in prison, a fellow inmate gave him a book, and it changed his life. He wants to give other incarcerated people that experience, too. So he's building libraries in prison cells. But I'll let him tell you about it.
0: My name is Reginald Dwayne Betts, and I'm the founder and director of Freedom Reads, a project that is meant to curate and build freedom libraries in prisons across this country.
1: Thanks so much for doing this when you have so much going on. This is really, really exciting. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about the Freedom Library as an archive and a collection. I have this podcast that's about kind of where knowledge lives, like where we store ideas and memories. And so I'm kind of fascinated, like of all the things that you could have done, most of which you're actually also doing different forms of prison education or prison writing programs or your own poetry and memoir writing, your own performance. Why a library?
0: You know, honestly, I, I feel like maybe a library is the most radical thing I imagine being able to be done. Um, but also, it's the thing that's absolutely quintessential to some movement, to actual building of like a, a community, to actually building of a civilization, to actually building of a democracy. It's like, where's your repository of language? And what does it mean to actually make that accessible and not make it accessible in a symbolic way? A lot of us don't live in a world where the library actually functions as pure symbol. We think about some, some public schools that aren't the greatest schools. They still have libraries in the school, and they still push the students to attend to go to those libraries. And maybe everybody doesn't go to the New York Public Library who lives in New York, but that's why they have satellite branches. And those librarians work really hard to make the services amenable and attractive to everybody in the community. In prison? You're lucky if you could get to the library once a month. And when you get there, you have 25 minutes. And so, you know, I remember coming home and people would criticize me uh, because I, I hadn't read a lot of Shakespeare. And I was like, well, why would I have read a lot of Shakespeare? I was going to the library for 25 minutes. I just had time to go to what I hungered for. I didn't have the time to explore what I might want. And so for me, it was both a process of curation and a process of creating the expectation for others. And I thought, well, what does it mean when I create the expectation from somebody? Who's doing time in prison to end up in these spaces in conversations with Sonia Sanchez. I mean, in conversations with Jill Lepore, you were publishing books. You were a scholar when I was in prison and I didn't know that you existed. And that's, that's like a tragedy. You know I mean? It's like, how might my world have been different? Had I been hip to more than just that, that one historical text that people quote. And so I, I feel like, you know, I want to have a role in, in, in saying that the books matter. Because the books matter, you know, the books don't matter because you're going to you're going to read them and necessarily become something different. They matter because it's the foundational principle of trying to build something more. And without it, you can't build more.
1: So a question I have for you working on this project or the Freedom Library is whether it's changed how you think about books. You know, we can think about books as a gift or books as a refuge, books as an escape. Like there are lots of different ways we think about books. I'm wondering if your thinking about books has
0: changed. In a couple of ways. Uh, one, I've realized how a lot of us have a common vocabulary and I've thought about how to push against that. And so certain books come up and, and you see that because you share experiences and you share education, folks are aware of those books. But then I watched how in conversation, you see that the really beautiful moments come when when it's a, a, a introduction of a book that somebody hadn't heard of. So one of the things I've noticed is that in curating a collection, y- you work very hard to see people. You know, I do. So I can't just have the run of books that you would read as a PhD student in sociology or a PhD student in law or a PhD student in history. It has to be far more complex than that, going up and down. I recognize that, you know, the dark books have to have light in it, and you have to understand what that light means, and it can't just be because somebody said it. So, but also, <laughs> I recognize that it is fifteen different ways to understand every book, and, and I've been having arguments with people who say, "Well, Jane Austen means this."
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know. Like, and, and somebody will say, "Are you really?" I'm going to include the um, heart of darkness. I mean, don't you understand? I uh, Layla Lalami wrote a beautiful introduction to that book where she talked about it was the first book in the English language she read. We bring meaning to books in the same way they bring meaning to us. And the question is, what can I make a community aware of as I do this work? And so in developing this library, I'm I'm trying really hard to engage with people in a way in which they remind me of their similar stories so that some of those books creep into this library and it's not... um, And and it becomes an enterprise that allows people to meet themselves where they are and grow somewhere. But it also becomes, I think, a symbol of that very process of becoming and not this idea of like, you know, if I had the books, like if I was like, who are you as a lawyer? And I I put torts and contracts and then you looked at that bookshelf, it wouldn't really communicate much except the finish line. But every beautiful library, I think, reflects more of the journey.
1: So what do you hear from readers?
0: I should tell you like one guy, he says, uh, oh, you, you sent it in, um, man, Search for Mina? Oh, man, that book changed my life. I mean, I'm telling you, I was in a bad way. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, yeah. And it was so emotional about it. And it's like, just like 40, he's like late 30s, black dude, you know, and like deeply talking about, that's the book that made me reimagine the world. Um, But other things though, it's like some guys that I met who really became educated in prison, uh, he said, uh, he said, uh, my man Richard talks about, you know, being stomped out by the guards. Uh, he had swung on one of the COs and then they beat him up real bad, broke his teeth. And being on the floor, mouth bloody, and later reflecting on it and thinking about how that was his Camus moment, where you make a decision about whether you want to live or, or you just want to give up. And, and, you know, it's like, it's something radical about talking to these guys who who get that kind of work from books. And it's interesting because the books get you just up to that ledge where the next thing you you start asking is, but how do we respond to the world given the decisions that were made, and how do we want the world to respond to us given the decisions that we made? So it's been it's been powerful. And some people haven't liked some books, you know. And it's and sometimes the DOC administrators are like, well, people don't like the books, and I'm like, this that's okay, <laughs> you know. That's part of it too. It's like you don't have to like every book. I think. I, t- I, told, I told the warden, I said, you know, part of my challenge is to remind people why these books matter, but also put emphasis on these and books. And it's not singular. So maybe something else will jump out to them. Um, and I, I've, I've been reminded of that. And that's been a, a nice lesson for myself as like a writer and a thinker who sometimes gets sad when people don't love what I say. Is that, you know, these young these these young folks and just men and women in prison have sometimes not like books that I love, and, and, and I have to accept that, and so do the writers.
1: Yeah, but also discriminating between the books that you love and you hate is kind of the spark, too. Like, that's that's, hey, that's, that's how you find out who you are. Like, I'm a person yeah. who hates Melville. That's, now
0: I know that. No, that's a lesson, though, honestly, though, because I think that you have to have a certain kind of self-confidence to really dislike a book. I know the first book that I vehemently disliked. And, and I know my response was to write a ten-page essay about how I disliked the book, and I was in solitary confinement. And I'll never forget that book. I'll never forget the ideas in it. I'll never forget exactly what made me dislike it. And 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 I've only read it once. And I and I know it. I know it in ways that I don't know books that I love. It was All God's Children, Fox Butterfield, about Willie about Willie Bosket. He was the kid that that led to the the New York Youth Offender Law, but. I know what prison I was at. I know what cell I was in. I know that I paid for the book. (laughs) God damn it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but then you own your ideas, you know, like that's the freedom of that. Like you own your opinion about that book. When you don't have much, like you can own that.
0: Especially when you don't have much. And I also think that's one of the powers of the libraries that, you know, when you don't have much, you do have your own ideas and books help you develop your ideas and help I had ideas post-reading that book that I didn't have before. You know, reading that book helped me understand the world around me in a way that I didn't before I read the book. Because I needed to be confronted with arguments I disagreed with to help me know what I cared about. In the same way in novels, you know, you get confronted with these characters that bother you. I mean, it makes you know why, you know, and and makes you maybe change some of the ways that you act in the world. Like, I don't, maybe I was like him. I don't want to be like him or her. You know, I don't want to act like they do, so...
1: Yeah yeah. To imagine yourself being in the role in the place of another human being making a choice is to imagine choices in in a way that you know is is about fully figuring out who you are. So you started sending out books already to to prisons and to juvenile detention centers and you're also involved in the building of physical bookshelves for the is that right? For the library yeah. to be housed in. How's that working? How does that work?
0: It's actually fantastic. I mean, one of the ideas was, okay, what if we just build books? And then some people said, but why don't you just give books away? You know, why why build a space? Uh, Would you say that about your local library? Would you say, why build a space? You know, a library is not just a collection of books that's strewn on the floor or, or placed on shelves. It's actually like some organizational structure that invites people to come towards it. And so that was a problem. How do you create that kind of space? How do you create a micro library within a building? that only has straight lines and right angles. That, that typically your understanding of it is only based on violence. And it has to be more than like the bookshelf behind me. And so we created something beautiful. We had them design something that has curves because no curves exist in prison. We had them design something where you could access the books on both sides because we want people to come together and meet at the stacks, you know, and be able to communicate with each other. And what's really been fascinating is that it's forced me to gain knowledge from others. You know, it's forced me to accept what I'm not an expert in. So, I'm learning what sheep goods are. I'm learning that some woods are soft and some woods are hard, and I'm working with the Department of Corrections and recognizing that prisons are violent places. And so we have to build a structure that doesn't hurt somebody. You know, we have to build a structure where the wood isn't so soft that it could be peeled and turned into weapons. I mean, and these are like serious considerations that I think going and creating something beautiful, but going to creating something beautiful within the context where it exists, recognizing that once it's created, all of us will want this in our house. And so I'm trying to bridge the gap between prison and freedom in such a way that it makes another argument for not needing prison, but it's acknowledging the, the conditions of incarceration right now. And, and, and look, and fascinating, and you're the first person publicly I've told this, you know, already Norton of Malcolm X fame, they've gutted a prison cell. And we're turning a prison cell into a library. And I think that that is just like, you know, if I was a person who gets emotional um, and hadn't been like, you know, radically transformed by prison in both good and bad ways, I would be weeping at the very idea that, um, you know, I was once in a hole where books were contraband. And then we're turning a a prison cell into a library. I mean, it, it is literally both a metaphor but an actual material fulfillment of some promise that that I always hoped was possible. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me think about it here. I I remember reading that when Charles Dickens came to the United States in 1842, he he was really interested in prison reform and um, he went to this prison in Philadelphia where Solitary confinement was a kind of a new practice. And he was allowed to see someone who had been in solitary confinement. Dickens was hugely opposed to solitary confinement and opposed to the conditions in the prisons. And he met this man who who just lost it. Like he just lost it in solitary. And he, he had been given like a single newspaper sheet and he had made a hat out of it and he wore this hat made out of a newspaper and it's just like this wrenching moment in this account of dickens's like this was his reckoning with america this this weird american moment was like watching that mind you know be kind of put into this cell and the way that this man was trying to escape um i don't know just thinking about the the cell being turned into a library it has this uh, just incredible, almost like Dickensian feel of the kind of the, the magnitude of that, you know, symbolically.
0: For me, it was walking down those corridors and feeling the way that the the stones carry memory. and And the way that the memory of those stones, I mean, they carry the memories of that guy from Dickens, you know, his mind unraveling because somebody felt like the way to transform you was to put you in a dark hole and leave you there and today decided you should be free. And, and, and you know, a part of the project is, is to make people recognize that. So when people say, but really, you want to build a library in a cell? I say it's one library in one cell in America, but it's 2.3 million people in all of the other cells. And the question becomes, do you want to talk to me about the library that I built in that cell? Or do you want to talk to me about the 2.3 million people that we filled all of the other cells with? Because I bet if we filled all of those other cells up with libraries, it wouldn't be room for people. And nobody would have a problem with those books being there. No matter how decrepit the building was, we will find our way to get to those books because we have value in it. How can we all find a way to get to those people?
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I'm just so impressed by everything that you're doing and by the just the scale of this project. And it's just deep humanity, and it's really going to stick with me. Thinking about what it means to care about each of those two point three million people the way we care about the books in our libraries. And I just want to thank you so much for everything you're doing and uh, for taking the time to talk with us.
0: Well, I'm I'm super humble, and and I thank you for participating and for caring about it. You know, it's like it's it's, it's probably the coolest thing I've ever done in, in this life. You know, if I would have picked one, and I'm glad that other people. Um, share some of my fondness for it.
1: Thanks for listening. That was Reginald Dwayne Betts. You can find out more about Freedom Reads at freedomreads.org. If you want to hear the rest of the series, subscribe to Pushkin Plus, look for The Last Archive show page in Apple Podcasts, or go to pushkin.fm slash plus. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. This episode was produced by Lucy Sullivan. Music, by Stellwagen Symphonette.